life on the road. It's bees, tacos, angry dwarfs, strippers waving guns, and bees, fights, candle flights, running with the runs, and blacklists, bounce checks, great a bachelorette, <laughs> drunks in the front, making out for your set, and middle acts doing blow more, missing merch, and drive the rental car past another mega church, and juice keys, vagina fist, your cell phone is gone. One big law and order marathon. If you want headphones, I know you have well-coiffed hair. I don't want to ruin that. I um, got to go do a TV spot after this, but if I don't, if I don't need to put them on, I should, Oh, no, no, no. I'll just every once in a while go like that in case you... Uh, in case feel, I'm too far away. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I um, know. The, uh, my, my manager, I'm embarrassed to say this. One time my manager, um, a guy from Canada called. He was going to interview me years mm-hmm. ago. He said, I have to talk to Tom Dreesen, and uh, I'm really nervous. Can you give me some kind of lead-in questions so that uh, he'll have stories? He said, ask him how his day is, and then get the fuck out of his way. <laughs> 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 I'm embarrassed. <laughs> the guy told me I, I wanted to kill my manager after that. <laughs> but, uh, I, I will say this. I was just playing cards with Jimmy Pardo the other night, and he hosts the Never Not Funny uh, a thon and you were, he said you were on last year, and just a well-dressed and a great interview. Oh, 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 yeah. I, I, you know, well, let's get an introduction okay. first. Uh, thanks for tuning in to Road Stories. I'm your host, Murray Valeriano. I got such stuff I want to talk about today. I'm going to forgo any announcements. I want to take my thank my friend Ryan Buds for or stopping by and kind of helping me out with this show today. Um, but let's just get right through it. I, I reached out to a, 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 a comedy, I would consider a comedy legend, uh, on Facebook. And uh, he said, sure, I'd love to do the show. And, and for that, I'm grateful. It's Tom Dreesen. Thank you for joining me today, Tom. I've been looking forward to this for like three weeks. Oh, uh, you're welcome. Maria, and the reason I'm doing it is because, I mean, I just found out coming in that I'm not getting paid for this. I didn't know that. <laughs> I really uh, didn't know You that. get Ryan Buds for an hour, send him to the market, whatever you want to do with them. That's my payment. He, he's my gopher. Okay. <laughs> yeah, yeah. You can, if you want any kind of I met of Ryan. I did, uh, I, my road manager, uh, mm-hmm. Brandon Gohl from Chicago, is a good friend of Ryan's and a, and a fan of Ryan's oh, as well. Oh, awesome. So he uh, told me about Ryan, and then I did. I do my one-man show, An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. I do it around the country, mm-hmm. and Ryan came to that show at the Theater West uh, Oh, that's great. Ago. Yeah. It's a small world, this... Yeah. this uh, I recognize him, although his eyes are open now. They were closed all during my show. <laughs> <laughs> no snoring here today, Ryan, if that's great. Uh, Tom, you're actually... Uh, you're going to be on Letterman this Friday, is that yeah, right? Friday night, yeah, Friday night. Ta- what what number is that? Do you know? Uh, probably fifty or sixty. I don't mm. know. I know. I you know. I, I my manager kept track of. Uh, I did sixty one appearances on the Tonight Show. Mm-hmm. My manager used to keep track of that just by the checks because he's sure, also my business manager. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure he would. And, and David, <laughs> I, I you know I've done so many. You know, David and I started out together right. at, the, at the at the comedy store. You know, many years ago, mm-hmm. and um, we were buddies. He had an old red pickup truck. He had no money. He, you know, drove this beat up pickup truck up, and, and I was hitchhiking up and down Sunset Boulevard. Right. I slept in an old Nash Rambler. Um, the front seat came down. It was an old abandoned car that was up on blocks. Oh, really? Yeah. I mean, I was, I was really struggling. I mean, it was a long story. I had a wife and three kids in Chicago, and I was with a comedy team that had split up. Right. Tim Reed and I were America's first black. Yeah, I wanted to talk team. to you about that. I'm we're, a we're big fan of both of you. For sure. But when that broke up, I, I found my. I mean, we all came out here. Johnny Carson moved out to the West Coast from mm-hmm. New York City. In those days, wherever you went in America, people say, "What do you do for a living?" You say, "I'm a stand-up comedian." Well, the next question out of their mouth was, "Oh yeah, have you ever been on Johnny Carson?" Mm-hmm. And if you hadn't been on Johnny Carson in the eyes of America, you just weren't a comedian. Yeah. You know, the, it, it was the show that launched you. Freddie Prince did one show, got a sitcom the next day. Yeah, yeah. When I did my first Tonight Show, the next day I got a CBS development deal. Fifteen million people watched that show. So. Consequently, when Johnny moved out here in 72, 
I the team split up in '75. Mm-hmm. I came out here as did Jay Leno and David Letterman and Gallagher and and Michael Keaton and all these people that I worked with every night. This was where you came, Robin Williams. We all yeah. came here because this is where the Tonight Show was. Right, know? right. So that's when I met David, and we've been buddies ever since. So uh, oh, that's great. I always look forward to when you're on uh, when you're on Letterman. It's 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 a great episode every time you're on. Not that I don't miss. I only tune in for you, but uh, you're just you're awesome on it. It's a it. walk in the park for me because see my I'm a stand up comedian. Yeah, you know. We got to walk out there and one and nail them. We got to score. Yeah, yeah. David always says, "No, don't do stand up. Come and just tell me stories." Well, I can do that all day long. Right. I mean, that, that's a, it, stories with a punchline. Sure, course, sure. You know, you know. And you can always see it between. And you can tell you and Dave go way back because there's such a good rapport between you two. And I think that always benefits the story a little bit more. <clears throat> yeah, you know, because most people don't believe that David Letterman ever had. I mean, his fans don't believe he ever had a, a life other than being a weatherman. In Indianapolis, yeah. graduating Ball State, and then going on TV. I mean, they didn't know he had. And, and David is a shy guy. He doesn't mm-hmm. have a lot of friends. Uh, I mean, you know what I'm saying? Real close friends because sure. he's kind of a, a, of, a, of a real shy recluse kind yeah, of guy. Yeah. Yeah. Let's uh, let's go let's go back to with you and uh, Tim Reed when you guys first started out. How did that come about, Tim Reed? Tim Reed, you might know from. I guess his biggest role would be Venus Flytrap from WKRP in Cincinnati. I think he went on to do Buffy, the TV show Buffy. Oh, he or? did that. He did Simon and Simon. Simon he played and Simon. a guy named Downtown Brown. Yeah, yeah. He did a show called Frank's Place that got oh, huge. Oh, Frank's Place. That's right. That was the other one I couldn't remember. He did a show called Sister, Sister, where he played the father. Oh, He's yeah. probably been on more sitcoms than any other actor in show business. Mm-hmm. You know? Yeah, yeah. He's a good type and a good actor. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, I had no... I had no idea I'd ever be in showbiz. I didn't. It was the furthest thing from really? my mind. I, I, I didn't train for it. I uh-huh. didn't. Go, it, it never entered my mind. I came out of the service. Uh, I spent four years in the Navy, and I served nine months with a Marine Corps unit called NEGDF, mm-hmm. Naval Emergency Ground Defense Force. And uh, when I came out of service, I was married. I had kids, and I just. Wandered aimlessly. I worked construction. I, I, I uh, sold life insurance. I was a photographer. Mm-hmm. I, I, uh, I was a bartender all the time, part time. I worked construction in the winter in Chicago, in the summer in Chicago, and always Ooh, winter in the Chicago in yeah. Chicago for construction. I don't know. Uh, and we did. We tried to do it, but I mean, I just wandered aimlessly mm-hmm. and was very unhappy. To mm-hmm. be honest with you, I mean, I, I'm not an unhappy guy, but I knew. Something in my life was missing. I would sit in the bar at 2, 3 o'clock in the morning with my buddies and, and drinking beer and thinking, I'm not supposed to be here, but I didn't know where I was supposed to be. Right. And, and it was frustrating me to know when. I probably would be a blown-out alcoholic today if it wasn't sure. show business. But I, but I got into a civic group called the JCs, in those days called Junior Chamber of Commerce. And um, the JCs were a young civic group of men 18 to 36. Today, it's men and women. But um, 18 to 36, that did community service projects. And mm-hmm. doing so, trained you to be a leader. One of the projects I became, I was chairman of, I wrote a drug education program teaching grade school children the ills of drug abuse with humor. Eighth graders, in those days, they didn't teach drug education to college students or high school students, let alone on an elementary school level. The night I was telling the JC chapter about what I was going to do with their sanction, I had to propose it to the general meeting. A new member comes in, this young black guy named Tim Reed comes up to me afterward and said, I'd like to work with you on that project. And I said, gee, I already got a guy. And to show you how fate is, the next morning, the guy that was going to help me, a white guy named John DeBoer, he called me and he said, Tommy, I can't do it. I got mm-hmm. a new job. I said, gee, what's that black guy's name? So I called Tim Reed. We go into the classrooms. Immediately, I realized, oh, this is the right thing because there were black students and white students in those classrooms in the south side of Chicago where we were from, Harvey, Illinois, where, where I, you know. And... Uh, I, you know, so immediately they saw a young black guy and a young white guy 
came to talk to them, and we made them laugh. Mm-hmm. We played music. We got their attention. But we played off of one another so well that the audience got a, the kids in the class got a kick out of that, that a black guy and a white guy. Because in those days, a black guy and a white guy didn't walk down the street together. Right, right. Let alone do anything together unless you were cops. You sure. Know? What year was this, roughly? 1968, okay. 69. Yeah, yeah. Anyhow. Turbulent times. Long story short, one day a little eighth grade girl said, you guys are funny. You ought to become a comedy team. The truth. The next day we were talking about this and he said, would you do that? And I said, I don't know. what." We didn't know what to do. We yeah, started yeah. writing what we thought was material. The thought of a black white comedy team intrigued me because no one had ever done that sure, in show sure. business before. Yeah, yeah. So we, we finally, after about four months of writing what we thought was funny and, and his wife threw him out of the house, you, 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 she said to me, Tommy, you can't come here anymore until you go do it. Well, there were no <laughs> comedy clubs in those days. Right. So we had to find a place you know, we found this jazz club. The guy let us get up, and we bombed. Oh, we bombed. oh really? Well, what happened was, you know, we just we knew nothing about stand-up comedy, right. but let's be let's remember our lines. Yeah. So we went up on stage, and this is how we sounded. Hi, we're coming to him and Tim and Tom. He's Tim and I'm Tom. Tom, we just came up tonight. We did. That's how we sound. That's like Ryan Butts. <laughs> when we came off stage, we rushed the owner into a corner. How do we do? What do you think? What do you think? Do you think? The guy said, "Whoa, whoa, whoa." I don't know how you did. You never gave me a chance to laugh. Oh, he right. said, slow down and come back tomorrow night. And the next night we came back and we got we scored. Oh, nice. And, and I, that was like an epiphany. Mm-hmm. I knew this is what I wanted to do. I had written something that got a laugh that night. And I couldn't sleep that whole night. Yeah. I couldn't sleep. I was like, uh, 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 I couldn't tell you. What. It was like an epiphany, like the, like an old B movie where the dark clouds open up. And sure, sure. Sunburst through. I said, yes, this is what I want to do. Oh, I found what I want to do. Oh, that's great. And, and I went to, next morning I got up and I went to church. I hadn't been to church in years. <laughs> it was a church in my, in, that I was an altar boy and I sang in the choir mm-hmm. and had no service. It was, it was a, a Saturday morning, and I, I, I prayed. I, got my, I said, God, I found out what I want to do. If you let me make my living as a comedian, I promise I'll never ask for anything else. And I'm making all these problems. Right. I'll do charities. Yeah, yeah. I'll do, and uh, many times I want to put an addendum to that contract. <laughs> but nonetheless, uh, you know, uh, all my dreams have come true. That's we, awesome. we stayed together six years, Tim and I. We had an album. Mm-hmm. We worked the Playboy circuit. We, we worked all black clubs in the north and the south, uh-huh. and all white clubs in the north and the south. We... Who did you find more, who was more accepting and who was more fearful? Was there a difference between the uh, white audiences and the black audiences? And the difference was, see, in those days there were no comedy clubs. So we were what they called the Chitlin Circuit, black-operated nightclubs. Like the 20 Grand in Detroit, the High Mm -hmm. Chaparral in Chicago, the the, um, uh, Sugar Shack in Boston, Mm -hmm. the Club Harlem in Atlantic City before they had gambling. So, um, you know, the interesting thing about racism if there was a, a black guy who hated white people, now you got to, let me let me give you the backdrop. Okay. 1969, 1970, the Vietnam War was raging. Students were protesting all over America. I had just gotten out of the service. Tim just got out of college. Students were protesting everywhere. Riots. African Americans were rioting in cities all over the United States: in Detroit, in Chicago, in Compton, in Watts, uh, in New York, in Philadelphia. Rioting, feeling disenfranchised from the system. In the midst of all this turmoil, we're going across the land, going to make people laugh. Mm. You know, a white guy and a black guy. Again, a white guy and a black guy walking down the street of Cincinnati or, or wherever we were in Mississippi or in Atlanta, Georgia. You never saw that, a black guy and a white guy, together, yeah. let alone on stage together. Sure. So we took on the fears of America. We took on the hatred and the fears and the turmoil of America. So when... when um, 
if there was a black guy who hated white people with a passion, he wasn't mad at, at me. Mm-hmm. He was mad at Tim for being with me. See, Tim would be an Uncle Tom. Oh, yeah. And if there was a white guy, a redneck, who hated white people with a passion, I mean, he, you know, hated black people with a passion, he wasn't mad at Tim. I'm the N-word lover, and he didn't mind calling me that, or two or three of them catching me in the men's room and, really? and, and trying to do a number on me. Really? Uh, the fourth time on stage, the guy put a lit cigarette out on Tim's, in Tim's face. Wow. Uh, you, want, you want road stories? I'll give you one. <laughs> <laughs> in Chicago Heights, Illinois, the fourth time a guy put a lit cigarette out on Tim's face and then tried to beat the bejesus out of me. And I boxed when I was in the service yeah. and I, I could handle myself. I had street fights as a kid, but this guy outweighed me by a hundred pounds and he pummeled me, literally pummeled me. And, uh, and that was the fourth time on stage. A year later, a guy hit me in the face with an ice ball at university of Illinois. Wow. You know, smacked me right upside, <clears throat> went outside, made an ice ball in the snow mm-hmm. and came in and hit me in the face with it. You know, in the blind, you know, when you're on stage, sure. you can't see what's coming at yeah, you. Yeah. But, uh, I mean, so we, we took on the fears of America, and, and yet there were people who loved what we did. Oh, I bet. But there's something about a black audience. I've got an album out in front of an all-black audience called That White Boy is Crazy. Yes. And there's something about a black audience when you get them. <laughs> when you get them. They, they come to be entertained. Yeah, yeah. And when you get them, and they'll talk back to you. Sure. You know, they, you know I do a whole bit about that, about black <laughs> audiences and white audiences. But, but when you get them and you got them, oh, man, there's no describing how, that, how, how good that is. You know? What do you think the, the driving force was behind you and Tim? Because I've, 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 I've wanted to quit after just have a bad set, let alone you know, getting into a fight afterwards. I mean, what do you think kept you and Tim going? I mean, that's, there's any, that would be reason enough to stop, you know? Yeah, well, and, and when Tim, Tim got that lit cigarette on his face and I got pummeled, we got in the car that night and he looked at me and we hadn't spoke. Mm-hmm. I was hurting really bad. I mean, I thought my chest was caved in. Uh, I, I won't describe the fight to you, but it got sure. really rowdy. Sure, know? sure. But we got in the car and Tim looked at me and he said, welcome to show business. <laughs> <laughs> that was our fourth time on stage. Right. But, but, you know, I think for me, what kept me together it kept, made me not, you know, Tim has his own reasons of sure. his childhood. My childhood, you know, I had eight brothers and sisters. We lived in a shack. Five of us slept in one bed. Mm-hmm. I had no bathtub and no shower and no hot water. I, I lived in a rat infested, roach infested shack. Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, I shined shoes in taverns from the time I was six years old till I was 12 to help feed my brothers and sisters. I, I uh, set pins in bowling alleys. I caddied in the summertime. Mm-hmm. I sold newspapers. I grew up on the streets. I don't have a degree from academia, but I got a doctorate from the streets. Right. And if you push me, I'm going to push you back. Yeah. I won't push you first. I've never been that kind of guy. But even in a ring, even in a ring, I'll, I'll fight fair, when I, you know, and I'll do the best I can. But if you do something to harm me, you, hang on, because you have to kill me then. Right. And, and I'm, just, I'm, and I'm not proud of this, but it's always been something I've been about. Mm-hmm. I'm Irish-Italian. Maybe there's a war going on inside me. I'm not mm-hmm. sure. But, but for me, it was, I wasn't going to let you take my dream away. Yeah. I wasn't going to let anyone take that dream away. You know, and I tell young comedians all the time, you'll have parental influence, you'll have wives, you'll have uh, friends, peers, all telling you how stupid you are to do this. Mm-hmm. Maybe not so much today because, you know, here's the difference. When I started out in show business, people say, what do you do for a living? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. They go, wow, Martha, come here, honey, come here. Tell, this is a, you know what he is? He's a stand-up comedian. Mm-hmm. You know what they say today? Say, what do you do? You say, I'm a stand-up comedian. They say, so is my chiropractor. Yeah. <laughs> he, he does it on weekends. Yeah, my, my dentist is a comedian, too. Yeah. <laughs> That's the truth. <laughs> so we'd keep, we'd, I would tell you or anybody, Murray, you know, um, or Ryan, if, you're going to have a lot of those times you're going to say, am I, am I peeing into the wind? Is this, yeah, yeah. Is this, should I give this up? And I say, not if it's your dream. Look. You know, I, one time I was on an airplane. I'd read everything but the air sickness bag. Right. And I, and I pick up this article. It's about 
anthropology, and I'm not interested in anthropology, but I was just reading it. And it was, this uh, doctor was saying that dinosaurs ruled the planet Earth for 250 million years, and man in his present form from Cro-Magnum to now, maybe 150,000 years. That, you know, that, that Earth, he said, this planet Earth has been here 10 billion years, mm-hmm. and it's going to be here another 10 billion before the sun destroys the Earth. The Earth is moving closer to the sun, and one day this planet will look not unlike Mars looks. It'll be scorched. Yeah. I put that magazine down, and I said... I, this planet was here 10 billion years before I was born, and it's going to be 10 billion after I die? That means my lifetime in this planet is a blink of an eye, a speck of sand. Boom, it's over. Pow, that quick. Yeah. That you would spend one moment of that blink of an eye bitching and moaning and cursing your lot in life is an absurdity. That you would spend one moment of that blink of an eye doing a job that you don't like, going to work every day to something that isn't your dream, isn't in your soul. Mm-hmm. It's spitting in your master's face saying, I don't appreciate this great gift of life. Yeah. You know, And so that's what I, I say when you go to give up. If this is really what you feel you were put here to do, make people laugh, then whether you do it in front of three people and never get known or 300,000 and you're the biggest star in the world, it doesn't matter. You have the gift to make people laugh. You know how rare that is? Less than one million, one millionth of one percent of the population can get up on a stage and make people laugh. You know, I, I encourage you. you know. Oh, that's great. Uh, just a little side note, if it gets too hot in here, just let me know. My beautiful wife... Uh Decided to straighten up the studio and then turned on the heat this morning and left it on. So uh, if it gets a little too warm in here, we can open the windows. No, I'm um, fine. Okay, you know, good. I, don't I told to you do. I grew up in a shack. We didn't have air conditioning in oh. a shack either. <laughs> I feel like I'm home. Um, what about some of the? What are some of the highlights of yours and Tim's shows? I mean, you, t- you told me about the rough times. There must have been some great times. Well, there were great times. You know, one time we went out in front of the Black Exposition, 10,000, uh, 15,000 black people mm-hmm. in a big arena, and we were new. And we did a routine where Tim taught me how to be black, and we just killed the. Oh audience. yeah, just <laughs> killed the audience and, and so that was a, a, a high moment you know I mean the, the, you know to this day uh, people write to me that saw the shows mm-hmm. and said you don't know how much you inspired me to have a discourse with my white friend or mm-hmm. my black friend President Obama and, and John McClain to their uh, McCain I'm sorry McClain, to their credit in 2008 said we need more discourse among the races you know we need more discourse here it is 2013 we're still saying you know we need more discourse among the races in 1969 tim reed and tom dreesen were the only discourse among the races yeah you had bill cosby and bob cope on tv behind the camera you had richard pryor and gene wilder in movies but we were in the trenches Mm -hmm. going across the land where there were no comedy clubs and we were having a discourse whether or not we were talking about race in our act Mm -hmm. didn't matter you know, we were, t- we were a black guy and a white guy. If we were talking about going to get a hamburger, we were having a discourse that the public, that the audience wasn't having. So, I mean, uh, I mean the highlights were, uh, to this day, people come up to me and say, you know, I, t- I have a black friend now, but I got that idea from watching you and Tim. And I always wanted to be his friend, but I didn't know how to approach him yeah. or vice versa. You know, the, the stupidity of our, our society. Sure, but, sure. But, you know, you're raised in cultures. You're raised to believe if you're... I, I grew up in a predominantly black neighborhood because my family was poor. We mm-hmm. had, you know, as I said, we had eight kids living in a shack. So I had black friends. I played basketball on an all-black basketball team. I played football on an all-black football team. I, I had the, these interactions, mm-hmm. you know, and so it wasn't foreign to me, you know. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I mean, but that, that's the absurdity of, of uh, and, and, and also it was the success and the downfall of Tim and I. Mm. We wrote a book called Tim and Tom, an American Comedy in Black and it White. It just came out a couple of years ago, right? Yeah, and now it's becoming a movie. Oh, awesome. Congratulations. Uh, yeah. That's great. Uh, yeah. They're, well, they're, 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 they've already got the final script and the rest is, awesome. you know, I'm getting it produced, but it's, it's a... Uh, 
it's going to be fun. That's yeah. great. Now, how did it become the 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 fall of you two? Like you said, you have to read the book. But okay, uh, all right. We like, don't want to ruin the book. No, that's okay. But like a woman, a woman sort of came between us. But but also the frustration of the business mm-hmm. of trying to make it in the business, sure. trying to make it. You know, when the team split up. I, I had a divorce that I didn't feel that destruct. I, I was destroyed about. Really, I my whole life. The first time I went on stage was with Tim. My dream was we'd be the greatest comedy team that showbiz ever knew. That was my dream. That was my goal. And when that when the team split up, it was Tim's idea. It crushed me. Yeah. The the thought of going it alone. I had never been on stage by myself before. Oh yeah. It was almost got to be like starting over. It was exactly. I had stage presence. Sure. But nonetheless, uh, I was used to working off of somebody. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I found doing stand up a lot more with a lot more freedom mm-hmm. that I can let my mind go where I wanted to go and everything. But yeah, it was very difficult. You know. So where did you uh, go after you and Tim split? Did you were you still in Chicago when you guys split? Or did yeah, you... I, Tim had come out here to the West Coast. Okay. And I eventually came out here too. We remained friends, but it broke sure. my heart. You know, oh yeah, yeah. It, I mean, you know, we were America's first black and white comedy team in history. Shows we were the last. Yeah, that speaks more to me than being the first. We split up in 1975. That was 38 years ago, and there's never been one since. Oh wow! That'll show you. Wow, look at that. You're right, huh? Yeah. Wow. So where did you? Uh where did you uh, head off to to start your solo career? Here. I came out here because in those days, uh, you know, I, I, the, the comedy store was booming. Yeah, yeah. The comedy store in 1975, 76, I can't describe to you the excitement on that strip. Sure. Every night you went in a comedy store. I was going on stage every night. Well, first of all, you had to get on. You had to come and you had to, you had to open mic. Yeah. And as, as you know, every comedian listening to this knows the horrors of that, that, you know, you stand in line. And I did. I stood in line for almost 30 days. Oh, wow. And finally got a chance. They put me on one night. I had five minutes to impress Mitzi Shore. Five <laughs> minutes. Now, you know, the, the pressure on that was worse than my first Tonight Show. Sure. Because if you didn't score at the comedy store in those days, go home. Because there were no other clubs out here, and there were no comedy clubs in America. They were just picking up a little bit at the time. And, uh, and, but every night at the comedy store, think about this. These were the shows that were using stand-up comedians. Johnny Carson, Merv Griffin, Mike Douglas, Dinah Shore, mm-hmm. Midnight Special, Rock Concert, Soul Train, American Bandstand. Those shows used stand-up comedians. Plus, in Canada, there were four or five shows that, that were you, flying, flying comedians up to Canada. To oh, show. okay. Comedy was the rock and roll of the 70s. Sure. It was the hottest thing going. And so every night at the comedy store, some comic was coming out the door saying, I just got Merv Griffin. I just got Dinah Shore. I just got the Carson Show. I just got, you know, the excitement. Not to mention sitcoms. You know? Yeah, yeah. I'm on stage every night with all these unknown comedians, Robin Williams, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Michael Keaton, yeah, Gallagher. Yeah. You know, and the girl waiting tables was Deborah Winger. You know, <laughs> uh, so, you know I, I don't know whatever happened to those kids, but I'm doing Right, you seem to be doing all right. <laughs> I'm doing Mary's podcast right now. But, I know. But, <laughs> Robin keeps calling. I'm like, eh, I don't know. We'll see. <laughs> but, but I mean, that, that's what it was like. That's where you had to be. This is where, you, if you were going to get discovered, this is yeah. where Johnny Carson was. And, and one appearance, as I told you earlier, your whole life changed. You know? Oh, yeah, I bet. Were you around for the strike? For the comedian strike? You have to read the book, I'm Dying okay. Up Here. I'm, oh. I'm Dying Up Here by William Needleseater. Uh, yeah. Brian, did you read that? Yeah. yeah. Oh, okay. Okay, great. And, and, I, and I, I, in fact, led the strike. Oh, you did? Yeah, you, you read that oh, in the I book. Oh, I apologize for not doing my homework. No, oh, that's my God. Okay. The reason, reason why I say that is because, see, I told you earlier about being in the JCs, mm-hmm. and so I knew how to conduct a meeting. I knew, how, I knew Robert's Rules of Order. I knew how to chair a meeting. I'm now on my way. I have done my first Tonight Show. I'm working in Vegas with Sammy Davis Jr. Uh-huh. I'm touring all around the country, and I'm making $300,000 a year, and I'm on my way. Sure. I'm working one-nighters. Every, I'm, I'm just hot. I come back home 
as we all do, even to this day, when I come back, I go over to Laugh Factory and I get up and try new material out. Sure. I stay in touch with a younger audience. Well, in those days, I'd come back and I'd call a comedy store and say I'm in town for the weekend. I go, <clears throat> when I come back after closing at Caesar's Palace, I go, go and the comedy store in those days had the original room. That's where we all tried out. Mm-hmm. Mitzi then bought the room next to it, a big room. Um, she bought it from this uh, rock and roll guy in my mind blanking there. No, but nonetheless, um, she, she then, it's a 450-seater or something. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> she didn't use Rodney Dangerfield, uh, Shecky Green, um, Buddy Hackett. They got the door. We work free. The comedians work for free. But So I came off the road, and I thought I was going in the original room to try out in my new material. They said, oh, you're in the main room. I said, the main room? I go in there, and it's Jay Leno, Elaine Boozler, uh, Robin, mm-hmm. David Letterman, and me. Not a bad lineup. Yeah, it's and, a great and, lineup. And even though that we were relatively new, <clears throat> place is packed. Afterward, Jay said, you know, we all went to have something at Cantor's, have something to eat. And Jay said, this is ridiculous. She pays the other guys. We filled the room. It took five of us, but mm-hmm. we packed it. Uh, we should get something, you know. Now they all mumble, grumble, and they decide they wanted a meeting. I went to the meeting. Have you ever been to a com- meeting with 100 comedians? You, it was madness. It's like herding ducks. Absolutely. <laughs> Everybody was talking at the same time and getting nothing done. So I went to the second meeting, and the same thing. Chaos, and Gallagher saying, we got to burn the place down. That's what we have to do. And <laughs> Anyhow, I finally got up, and I said, look, ladies and gentlemen, we're not going to get anything done unless somebody chairs. So I began to chair the meeting mm-hmm. and saying, hold on, hold on, hold on. Jay, hold your point. Gallagher. Jay's got the floor, you know, hold on. Then I put it in the form of a motion, and I began to organize them. Once they got organized, comedians of my era came out of the ghetto. We came yeah. out of the poor neighbors. I'm, I'm a high school dropout. You yeah, know? Yeah. And I, I ended up going to, in the service and then junior college nights after I came out of the service. But, but my point is, these kids were all coming from academia, mm-hmm. coming from major colleges. Once you got them organized, they were a force to be reckoned with. Oh, really? I mean, really a force to be reckoned with. And they, once they got organized, they were smart. And I began going to Mitzi. <clears throat> they voted me spokesperson, uh-huh. so I began going to Mitzi, trying to get her to pay. Saying, Mitzi, look, come on. You pay the doorman. You pay the, you pay the waiters, the waitresses. You pay the guy who cleans the toilets. Yeah, yeah. Pay the community. No, I'm not going to pay. And, 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 and this is a college and so forth and so on. I said, well, you charge a cover, you know, you know a charge. Give them part. And she w- wouldn't yield. And, and after about a month of this negotiating, the kids are now saying, let's strike. Yeah. Let's go on a strike. I went to her one more time. I said, Mitzi, I got an idea. You charge at that time four fifty at the door. I said, charge five fifty. Let the comedians have that one dollar. If there's two hundred people, they split up two hundred dollars for the night. If yeah, there's yeah. hundred people, they split up hundred. Give them one dollar. I figured I, that was because I thought it was about money. Sure, sure. She said, no, they don't deserve to be paid. Then I knew it wasn't about money; it was about control. Yeah. And I knew we were in trouble. The comics voted to strike. The strike should have lasted 24 hours. 18 or 19 comics crossed the picket line, 18 guys and one girl. Had they stuck together, mm-hmm. it would have been over in 24 hours. Sure. But because they crossed, it took almost eight weeks. And in that meantime, I mean, after it was over, a kid committed suicide, Steve Lebetkin. Uh, jumped off the top of the Continental Hyatt House toward the comedy store. Yeah. And he wrote a suicide note, said, my name is Steve Lebetkin. I used to work at the comedy store. He couldn't get back on after the strike was over. Hmm. And, you know, it's all in the book called sure. I'm Dying Up Here by William Needlecedar. You know, it's, if, you, if, if any comedians are listening, you should read this book for no other reason than know the history of, the, of why you got paid. Yeah, yeah. Uh, why, why. See, other comedy clubs in America were saying, come to Denver, Murray. Yeah. You know, come to Denver, Ryan. We'll give you 100 bucks for the week. You'd say, well, I don't work for a whole week for 100 bucks. They say, well, you work the comedy store for free. Come here. We'll house you. We'll feed you and give you 100 bucks, and you can try out your new material here. 
So I was telling Mitzi this, that, that, you know, if you would pay, they would have to fall in line with the fair payment. And, and it was an argument, and it never, hmm. we never got it resolved. You know? Was the improv just opening right then? The improv point? just opened at that time. And meanwhile, during the strike was going, I mean, we were talking of strike. Mm-hmm. Um, Mitchie had a meeting. It's in the book. She had a meeting with her loyalist, and, uh, and uh, she, they, they, she said the comedians are talking about going on strike. And one of the comedians said, comedians won't go on strike. They need a place to work. She said they may work at the improv. And this guy in the back said, what if there was no improv? And we know who that was. And uh, about a week later, somebody threw a Molotov cocktail on top of the roof of the improv and burned it down. Burned down the back, but not the front. Bud came to me, Bud Friedman said, Tommy, if you guys strike me, if you're going to go on strike and you strike, I'm dead. I've got to rebuild my club. He wanted to keep the front part open. Mm -hmm. and And I said, Bud, will you sign a memo that once you get rebuilt that you will in fairness, pay the comedians. He said, absolutely, and he signed the memo. I said, okay. So during the strike, we sent people over there to work because he had said that he would pay, and we, he signed a, a memo oh, to that's it. great. And he kept his word after the strike. Oh, that's awesome. He wasn't happy about it. Well, yeah. It. The, great, uh, the late, great uh, old friend of mine, Robert Schimmel, uh, tells the story about how he quit his job, sold everything to move out to Los Angeles to be a stand-up, and he goes, to, and Bud said he could work at the improv, and he pulls up the day after it burned down. Mm. <laughs> He's just like, he oh, pulled no. up the night. That oh, the night it burned night. down? If you remember, Shimmel came up, and he comes up, and the place is burning, and Bud's going, oh, my God, who did this to me? He says, Bud, my name is Robert Shimmel, and I came here, and you told me to come here, but not now, Shimmel. <laughs> and the place was burning. That's a great story that, that Robert used story. to tell, yeah. <laughs> well, that's great. Uh, so you, you spent a lot of time in Los Angeles heading out on the road all over the place, and you hooked up with uh, somebody named... How my process? Sinatra? Is that right, Frank? See, you young kids don't Frank know who Sinatra. that was. He used hey, my to sing. son, who we tiptoed by, is yeah. named Frank. Oh, no kidding. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I, the, the, it's, it's all over the web and all that that I opened for Frank Sinatra for 14 years. The truth was Frank closed for me. <laughs> That's the way I did. Yeah, after working with Sammy Davis. Yeah, you worked with Sammy for I a while. For yeah, three yeah. years, and I learned so much about show business touring with Sammy, sitting in the wings watching him every night. And then I went Boy, on the road. What a showman, huh? Oh, he was the best. Could do he, everything. There wasn't anything he couldn't do. But um, he could sing as good as anybody out there. I yeah, never yeah. heard him hit a bad note. Frank said that. He said, I never heard Sammy hit a clinker. Wow. Frank would hit a clinker once in a while. Yeah, yeah. But uh, Sammy's also a good drummer, right? He, he, could, he could sing. He could dance as good as anybody out there. He could do impressions better than any impressionist mm. out there. He could do comedy. Very good at comedy. He could um, uh, play trumpet. He could play piano. Mm-hmm. He could play the drums. There was hardly anything he couldn't do on stage. And, and it was a joy to watch him. And he loved performing. Yeah. But after I toured with him about three years, and I was touring with Smokey Robinson mm-hmm. and different people, and I was at Caesars in Lake Tahoe performing, and uh, Frank was next door at Harris, and I had worked Harris many times, mm-hmm. and um, with Sammy. So you know, after my show one night, I bolted off stage, didn't even change out of my uniform, out of my uniform, out of my <laughs> stage clothes, and um, and I shot over to, and I was running into the showroom, and the vice president of Harris Hotel saw me, and he was with a guy named uh, Holmes Hendrickson. Mm-hmm was the vice president of the hotel. He was with a guy named Mickey Rudin, who was Frank Sinatra's lawyer. And he called me over. He said, Tommy, this is Mickey Rudin. I recognize him. Mm-hmm. He said, Mickey, this is Tom Dreesen. I think Tom would make a great opening act for Frank Sinatra. And the lawyer got a pained expression on his face like he heard that a million times. Right, right. And he said, he winked at the vice president, and I caught it. He said, hey, kid, if I gave you a week with Frank, would you want more than uh, 50000 I said, Mr. Rudin, put it this way. If you gave me a week with Frank, would you want more than 50000 <laughs> He said, I like this kid. And, and, I, and I, a week later, they gave me the gig. I figured I'll get my picture taken with Frank, hang it in every bar in Chicago. Sure, sure. And what happened was I, I ended up um, 
the second night with him, he and his wife Barbara took me out to dinner. And I can remember like it was yesterday, he set his knife and his fork down. He looked at me, he said, I like your material and I like your style. I'd like you to do a few other dates with me if you're interested. And I didn't say, let me check my calendar. Right, right. I said, yeah, and it turned into 14 years. Oh, that's great. 45, 50 cities a year. Uh, I, I loved him. He became like a father to me, mm-hmm. and we had a great relationship. I stayed at his home five, six times a year. I was a pallbearer at his funeral, mm-hmm. and I spoke at his funeral. Okay. And, and uh, it was it was very, very challenging and, and very emotional for me. You know, very sure. difficult. I would imagine. How how were the audiences for for those types of shows as opposed to a, a comedy club? Well, the, when you open for Sinatra, I mean, it's sold out. Every show is sold out sure. wherever you go. Every time you walk out on stage, if you're in Vegas, it might be 1,000, 1,200, 1,400, 2,000, whatever room. We were on contract to seven different hotels Mm -hmm. in the time that I toured with them. But when you walk down stage, you look and you go, oh, my God, there's the governor of uh, so-and-so. Oh, look over there. There's Gregory Peck. Oh, yeah. I'll be damned. There's Kirk Douglas. You know, Mm -hmm. look over there. Oh, just Sidney Poitier. I mean, that's the kind of people you worked in front of. The president of the United States. Mm -hmm. I don't know how many times that happened. Wow. I mean, you know. It's an it's it's an awesome experience. Now, when you work twenty thousand seat arenas, I can't explain to you what that. You know, as stand up comedians, that the material that I do last last Saturday night or something, say at the Laugh Factory in front of two hundred people, that same piece of material, while it might kill that same piece of material in front of two hundred thousand or twenty thousand people, has a different dynamic. Mm-hmm. You know, I can teach I, I teach classes sometimes at USC, UCLA, Cal State Northridge. To young and, and at comedy clubs, the kids who want to be comedians, mm-hmm. I'll teach. I can teach you how to write a joke and how to tell a joke. I can teach you technique about stand-up comedy. I can't teach you timing. You're either mm-hmm. born with that. You either have it or you don't. Yeah. And the, when you real really realize whether you have it or not is when you work two hundred people, hundred people, two hundred people. Then you work two thousand. Then you work twenty thousand mm-hmm. people with the same material. There's a different dynamic to that material. Yeah. You know, your, your brain doesn't. You you know, there's a moment. Some nights. You, you would let that laugh go all the way to that. You never move on your next line while the laugh is on its way up. Yeah, yeah. It's always when it's on its way down. Now, sometimes you let that laugh come all the way down like a rock hitting the pond, and then the ripples go across the water, and then you move. Other nights, you move on that laugh. When it's on its way down, it doesn't even hit the water. Mm-hmm. I can't tell you. I don't know how to do, tell you how to, but I know when, that when I'm out there. Sure. That my timing brain goes boom, boom, or something, you know, so... Again, how was that? It was an awesome experience. 20,000 people. Here's, here's what I tell young comedians. I'd say, Murray, this is what it was like opening for Sinatra. Mm-hmm. Just before you go out, you say, Murray, there's 20,000 people out there. You're going to stand in the middle. You're in the round. I want you to go out there, and I want you to stand in the middle of 20,000 people and hold their attention for the next 45 minutes. Oh, one more thing, Murray. I want you to hold their attention, but I want you to make them laugh mm. for 45 minutes. Oh, one more thing, Murray. I want you to hold their attention and make them laugh. I want you to make them laugh when you want them to laugh. I want you to pull the strings on the emotions of 20,000 people. No props, no tricks, no charts, no special arrangement, no special lighting, no orchestra, nothing. But you and 20,000 people. And one more thing, Murray. Not one of them came to see you. <laughs> <laughs> you, you say, you're on, Murray. Yeah, right. <laughs> wow, 45 minutes before Frank, huh? Yeah. And that's the way it was where we went all around the country. I mean, really? Yeah. How much time was he doing? He did an hour. Well, in the, in the concerts, he did like an hour and 10. Now, in Vegas, it was different. It was an hour and five for Frank and 25 for me. Okay. They're 90-minute shows. Sure. In those days, they stuck to it because they wanted those people in the casino gambling. Yeah, they still kind of do that, too. In a lot well, of those well, Frank was that way. See, Frank knew. Always leave them wanting a little bit more. Yeah. You know, uh, the difference between Frank and Sammy, Sammy would do two, three hours sometimes. Oh, really? Oh, he'd, Sammy would go on and on because he loved to perform. Sure. Here's the problem. People would come to Vegas and they'd say, 
You want to, you ever see Sammy Davis? Oh, I saw him. He was wonderful. I saw him like three years ago. You want to go see him tonight? No, I saw him like three years ago. Mm. Here's the difference. You see, want to see Frank Sinatra? Oh, I saw him three months ago. Yeah, I'm going back. I'll go. You know. Yeah. Because Frank knew always leave them wanting a little bit more. You know, that's something that uh, I think this generation and Brian could probably attest to this needs to relearn because you go to these, you know, even at the uh, comedy store now or even at the improv, the shows start at eight and they end at 12. You know, it's just you just fry people out. And, and you know, and, and I can I'll say this. I, it happened Saturday night at the Laugh Factory. Mm-hmm. The MC did way more time than, than he should have. Then the next act did way, way the opening act. All of a sudden, the owner comes in after two or three acts, and he's panicking. And he starts cutting his better acts yeah. short. And I told him about it. I said, you need to clock these people and make them stick. Look, if there's five of us on a bill, I tell all you guys, hey, let's all do 18 minutes. Mm-hmm. I promise you, the last guy's going to have as much energy as, you know. If you if you do twenty five and he does thirty and I do thirty five, we kill that guy at the end. Oh yeah, we kill that person at the end, that guy or girl at the end. You know, it, it, it's it's a one thing I'll give Mitzi Shore credit for. She created that mm. that part. Stick to the time that you're given. Rather than her husband, when he owned the place before, every comic could get up and do forty five, do an yeah. hour, till you got tired of him. But Mitzi stuck to that. St- that time and she's right there's only so much energy an audience has yeah and, and in the old days when there would be five acts on the bill in vaudeville they would tell stories I mean I would, I'm not that old they tell, <laughs> tell us of vaudeville that Mr. Dreesen <laughs> a certain act could steal the show that's where that came from yeah he stole the show maybe the third act or the fourth act and no one could follow it mm-hmm. but if each comic adheres to their time if there's five of us on the bill we'll all do good yeah we'll all score you know so when you're uh, performing with Frank and by the way I love how you mentioned you and Tim just barreled through your first set, but then here you are doing it so long that you're tr- you're trained enough and you know you have your timing enough to know when to drop the next punchline as twenty thousand people are reacting. I think that's great. Uh, when you were performing with Frank in those twenty thousand, were you were you still hitting the clubs when you were home to work out material? Sure. Or I guess you can't really work out in front of twenty thousand. No, but I still was always working on new material, and I always every city I went to with Frank, even when you, I'd always learn something about the local area and try mm-hmm. to open with a couple of local jokes. Oh yeah. When you worked with Frank, if you did now, if we worked Vegas or Atlantic City, of course we'd go in for the week. But when you did one nighters with Frank. You got in this private jet the morning of or mm-hmm. the afternoon of. We landed one hour before the show. Squad cars and limousines would rush us to the arena. And in moments, I'd be changing into my tuxedo. And maybe in 20 minutes, I'd be on. Mm-hmm. But what I would do is sometimes ride up front with the limo driver and say, tell me who's the mayor of, of Akron, Ohio, if we were oh, in Akron yeah. or Dayton. Who's the mayor? What's his name? Any controversies going on? Well, uh, is there anything going on? Uh, you know, I would, I would get some uh, so I could localize the yeah, first sure. couple jokes. You know, and and, uh, and and they would be amazed that I knew something about the area. Yeah, yeah. I, I'll, I'll give you a quick example. Um, I remember one time in Louisville, Kentucky, I said to the limo driver, um, who's the richest guy in Louisville? And he said, a guy named Bradley or something like John Bradley. Mm-hmm. He said, he's so wealthy. That's, everybody talks about it. He's got more money than Bradley. And it was, I said, okay, good. And I said, is there any scandals have been going on and he thought and he said well there's one but maybe i said well, tell me what he said well there was a woman her name was sissy something or the other as uh, sissy williams or something mm-hmm. like that and she was running for city council but she claimed to have all these degrees and they found out she didn't have them and so oh. that was a scandal she lied about having all these degrees that night when i went on stage the first thing i said was i said i love working here in louisville you know on a quiet night 
If the wind is blowing just right, you can hear William Bradley counting his money. Now all the audience laughed. I said either that or Sissy Williams counting her degrees. <laughs> it roars. Now yeah. I did 30 minutes after that or more. The next day the review was those two jokes because they thought it was fascinating that we landed an hour before mm-hmm. and I already knew local. I mean, So sometimes if you localize material, it doesn't have to be... A scream. Sure. It doesn't have to be that guffaw. Yeah, yeah. You know, which we're all looking for. You know, it could be, it, it, but it's it's a smart joke. No, and I still think some of the best ones do it. I had Greg Proops on the podcast the other day, and he does his shows, and he's always, you know, first of all, he's one of the most well-read people I've ever talked to, but he's always got a wealth of information about where he's performing. If if you love stand-up comedy, you know, if, if you're in it, here here, here here's I'm going to get philosophical. I give okay. motivation speeches at universities. <laughs> At UCLA, UC, Cal State, no, I do that as well. I give motivation speeches to corporate America. I've read literally hundreds of books on the powers of the mind. It's a passion of mine you know, because I came from such a negative background sure. and, and I wanted to, uh, to rise above all mm-hmm. that. But we're driven by two energies our whole life, our ego or our Holy Spirit. Call it what you want, your center, your soul, whatever you want. Here you go. Now, you weren't born ego. You were born pure spirit. Mm-hmm. You know, when you were born, you didn't know if you were boy or girl, Jew or Gentile, black or white. You were just a spirit. You loved everything and everybody like that little boy you have. Yeah, yeah. He doesn't know who he is or what he is, but he loves you and he loves, and he gravitates. His spirit goes to you and connects with your spirit. Mm-hmm. Every child, that's who we are. That Now, about the time you're three or four years old, well-intentioned adults sometimes misinformed begin to program your computer little boys do this we little girls do that you know we you know blah 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 blah. about the time you're three four years old you're starting to develop an image of yourself based upon their information thus the ego is formed Mm -hmm. and that's the yin and the yang of your life the rest of your life your ego and your spirit your ego and your spirit you know if you're, I, I, and, I, and I, I, I can be driving down the street and get angry at it, say, oh, damn, you cut me off. And I realize, hold on, that's not my spirit. Mm-hmm. Your ego demands that you walk down the street and get mobbed. Your ego can never get enough fame, fortune, money, power, can never get enough. It, it, it has an insatiable appetite that will drive you to failure at some point because it can't get enough. The spirit, conversely, is like a song of the 70s. All I need is the air that I breathe mm-hmm. and to love you. That song, all, and that's all your spirit needs. Yeah. So if you're in show business, because your spirit says, I love making people laugh. I love to hear the sound of laughter. You're in it for all the right reasons. If you're in show business, you say, I'm going to show them SOBs, how good I am. I'll show them, and, and I'm going to get a new car. I'm going to have Rolls Royces, <laughs> and I'm going to have power and money, and I'll show all them SOBs that said that I couldn't make it. Then you're in it for all the wrong reasons. That's yeah. the ego, and the ego will eventually destroy you. Brian? Pay attention. So if you love making people, I wrote a poem one time called The Sound of Laughter. I, mm-hmm. I'm not going to do it for you, but its first line is, as far back as I can remember, or shortly thereafter, I love to hear the sound of laughter. It, it's a big turn on for me, and I like yeah, to yeah. make people laugh. Besides all that, laughter is healing. Mm-hmm. You, know, we, you know, Norman Cousins wrote the book, Laughter Math, and he wrote another book called The Anatomy of an Illness. And in it, he describes how it saved his life. He had a terminal illness. He was going to die. The doctors told him he had a heart condition that he would eventually die from. He laid in the hospital and figured if negative input, stress made me ill, positive input should make me well. So he checked out of the hospital. He would only watch I Love Lucy reruns, Candid Camera, Three Stooges, Marx Brothers, mm-hmm. listening to albums, Jonathan Winters, Cosby. He wouldn't read any newspapers or watch any news. He lived 27 years after the doctors told him he was going to die. Mm-hmm. And he wrote these books. UCLA did research because of him. And now we know that when the human body laughs, endorphins are released into the brain that are chemicals that are healing. That's why after a hearty laugh, yeah. tears are running down your face. And you go, 
ah, and that sense of well-being comes over you, your body's gone through an actual chemical change. So comedians are physicians of the soul. Yeah. Therefore, you can refer to us as Dr. Dreesen. <laughs> you know, it's funny you mentioned that book. My dad and my listeners know this. My dad's a preacher. And uh, he preached a sermon on, uh, based off that book one mm. time mm. on the positives of laughing. So you are, that's what you stand-up comedians are. How important are you to a society, to a world? Mm -hmm. That's why I give motivation speeches to comedians. I call it the joy of stand-up comedy and how to get there. Mm -hmm. I've done it in New York and Philly, all, all over the country. Here at the Laugh Factory, I, sure. I do it sometimes. But to, to let them know how special they are and how unique stand-up comedians are. They're the most important profession, I believe, on the planet, bar none. Mm -hmm. They really are. Uh, you know, and, and, the, and I always tell them, Never badmouth another comedian. Mm -hmm. Have you ever heard, ever gone to a doctor and say, gee, I'm thinking about going to Dr. Blankwell? And they say, don't go to that butcher. I wouldn't <laughs> send a tree to that. It, they don't talk badly of their profession, right. nor should we. Oh, interesting. Yeah. There's, a lot of, uh, there's a lot of bad talking uh, in this industry. Absolutely. Because it comes from envy and fear. Mm -hmm. You know, here's the envy and fear. Every comedian worries about, I started out with Murray, or I started out with Ryan, and Ryan just got his first tonight show, and we started, I was a year ahead of him. The number one mistake all comedians make, never compare yourself to another comedian. Mm -hmm. There's a great Hindu proverb. There's nothing noble in being superior to another man. True nobility lies in being superior to your former self. Mm -hmm. Am I a better friend than I was last year? Am I a better father than I was last year? Am I a better son? Am I a better you know, uh, mm -hmm. husband? Am I a better comedian than I was last year? That's your only competition. Listen to your tapes from last year. Yeah. I'm only in competition with my former self, you know. That's awesome. What? Uh, tell us a little bit about uh, your one-man show that's going on right now. Every, every, I knew when I toured with Frank Sinatra, he was larger than life. Arguably the greatest career show business has ever known is Frank sure. Sinatra. I mean, aside from his singing skills, he was a great actor, won the Academy Award. He was a brilliant. He was just a great, a great career. And I knew when I was touring with him that after he passed, if he mm -hmm. passed first, no matter where I'd go, everybody mm -hmm. wanted to know about him. Mm -hmm. And that's all they did to me. I was running a marathon for multiple sclerosis. My sister had MS, and we called it 26 Miles for Darlene. And I'm getting ready to run my first marathon. The CNN comes over, and the guy's got a camera. Got a, so we're standing here with Tom Dreesen about to run his first marathon. Tom, can we ask you a question about Frank Sinatra? Was he connected to the mafia? I'm getting ready to run my first <laughs> oh, marathon. But I told Frank this one time on the jet, no matter what happens, my obituary is going to say the comedian who toured with Frank Sinatra. Mm -hmm. And he said, well, maybe my obituary will say the singer who toured with Tom Dreesen. We both start laughing like two silly school kids. Right. But, but so it's come to pass. So every time I go on David Letterman, he'd mm -hmm. want to know a, a, a Sinatra story, every show. So I decided to put together a one-man show called An Evening of Laughter and Stories of Sinatra. And uh, it's, it's become a big hit. I mean, oh, that's great. Now, let me say this to every stand-up comedian out there listening. Sure. That's where you have to go. Every stand-up comedian, the comedy clubs can only build your career a little bit to, to, to give you an act, help you pay the rent, but you've got to take it to the next level now. Comedy clubs now are becoming almost passe, mm -hmm. even though they're still out there. And there's theaters in every city in America, state-of-the-art theaters. In Kansas City, there might be five of them. In Tulsa, Oklahoma, eight or ten. Theaters, 200-seaters, 100-seaters, 500-seaters, mm -hmm. 1,000-seaters. Every stand-up comedian has a story to tell with your act. Yeah. Take your act. You know, Jackie Mason went on Broadway. Jackie Mason couldn't get arrested for a one of the great comedians of all mm -hmm. time. He takes his, he calls it the world, according to Jackie Mason. He put some props on the stage and did his act <laughs> and, and sold out every night. My, mine is, is, is stand-up comedy. The, the, you put some production value into mm -hmm. it. Okay, the theater goes dark. 
the screen comes out. Dennis Farina narrates about four minutes of my life, excerpts of my life. He narrates your website, your promo web, for your yes. website. Yeah, I uh, picked up that. Uh, you guys must be old Chicago friends, right? Yeah, he's right? a good buddy. Oh, I love him. He's great. So I, he introduces me. I walk out. I do about 25, 30 minutes of stand-up, and I segue over to a bar, and I tell a joke at the bar, and the lights go out, and Frank Sinatra singing on the screen. It's quarter to three. Mm-hmm. There's no one in the place except you and me. I let that mood set in. When he gets to the chorus, make it one for my baby and one more for the road, the light hits me, and I tell the audience, the first time I heard that voice, I was eight years old, shining shoes in a bar in Chicago. He was on the jukebox. I take the audience in from that little boy who heard Sinatra on the jukebox, in the south side of Chicago, to one day carrying his coffin out of a church in Beverly Hills. Mm. I take them on that journey. Every stand-up comedian, man or woman, has that story. There's a story. Maybe not Sinatra, but their own stories of how they got from A to B to C. Their aunts, their uncles. Billy Crystal did it on Broadway. I went to see it. It it was a little bit long. It was like three hours long, but nonetheless, the place was packed. Those theaters are state-of-the-art. Let let me give you a quick example. Every comic listening should know this. A woman calls me from Frankfurt, Illinois, of all places, way south of Chicago. Mm-hmm. She said, I want you to do, I, she got my number through a friend, of, that we had a mutual friend. I want you to do a show here at the, I, I'm booking a theater in a high school, Lincoln Way High School. I said, a high school? She sends me the picture of the theater, 850 seats, state of the art. Yeah. <laughs> state of the art theater, looked like Broadway. I said, first of all, I don't know that I could draw 850 people on a Saturday night in Frankfurt, Illinois. Can you dress the theater down? She said, Mr. Dreesen, it's not Saturday, it's Wednesday. I said, well... I know I can't draw 800 people on a Wednesday night in Frankfurt, Illinois. Can you dress the theater? She's Mr. Dreesen. It's not Wednesday night. It's Wednesday morning at 11 o'clock in the morning, and you have to be out of there in 90 minutes by 1230 because the kids get out of their classrooms. She's, I said, look, I'm not going to come there and embarrass you or embarrass me. Right. She said, Mr. Dreesen, I'll give you two weeks before the opening night, opening day to abort the project if we don't sell it out. I took the deal. We didn't sell 850. We sold 880. They put 30 folding chairs nice. in, the, in the auditorium. And they also had over 350 on the wait list. Now, I didn't do one radio show, one TV show. Mm-hmm. I didn't do one newspaper ad. Subscribers list. Every one of those theaters has a subscribers list. Yeah. You put together a show. That's They got to fill that theater. They have a subscribers list out there. Now... As a stand-up comedian, I mean, and they sold it out, and now I'm going back again. I'm going back September 18th to do it again in Frankfurt, Illinois. Awesome. Did you get the 1 p.m. slot this time? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, you got to do it. You got to do it 11 and get <laughs> oh, out there at 12. Oh, you have to do it 11 yeah, really? Yeah, and you got to get out there at 12.30 because, you know, but, but hey, I love it. That's awesome. But, you know, for, for us as stand-ups, we're following, you know, in your comedy career, you follow four or five comedians mm-hmm. or whatever, unless you're out there doing it on your own, but... Here, I go out, and I'm all, it's a theater, and there, by the way, there's no drinks, there's no waiters, there's no waitresses, yeah, yeah. they're not barging in and out and interrupting no your show. No check drop. No check drop, yeah, none yeah. of that. Bingo, you got them all sitting there on the edge of their seat waiting for you. It's, it's heaven. Nice. And I tell every stand-up comedian, that's where you want to go. Look for those theaters. Start putting together that one-man mm-hmm. show. You've got a story. You know you do, you know. A uh, recent uh, comedian Bobby Collins on here has, has taken that uh, approach lately. The theater, the theater thing he puts on himself. Now I would, I have. What are some of the your favorite, like one or two? Favorite, well, first of all, I see you have notes there. I well, love no, I, when I, people I, bring notes. It's my I, favorite thing. I would, but I was, I was one, you know, a road story, a couple of road stories that that happened. Um, uh, one time in Detroit, we were working an all black club called the Twenty Grand. Tim mm-hmm. Reed and I. And we're in an all-black area, and we're going back to 1970, 1971. Yeah, yeah. And uh, uh, Tim and I were in this, in this uh, called the Twenty Grand Motel, you know, and everything. And, and so uh, 
uh, we had a deal on the road. If one guy picks up a girl, the other guy had to leave. Right. You know, because we, we, he, he, he was married and had two kids. I was married and had three sure, kids. Sure. So I'm telling stories that, but every, every comic out there said, yeah, I know, I've been there, you know. But <laughs> I haven't. Uh, okay, I know you haven't. In that. case you're listening, honey. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, but so did Tim happened to have, pick up a girl, and I had to take a walk. Now, it's 5 o'clock at night, and it's raining in Detroit in an all-black neighborhood. It's not raining hard, but like me. So I walk out, and I walk the streets. And, and I come back, and Tim's not, not, not right, knock on the door, and he's sitting, you know, not, can you come back in a little while? I walk back again, I come back in a little while later. Now it's like 6.30. Our first show is 8 o'clock. I knock on the door, can you come back in a little while? This time I take a walk, two black cops in a plainclothes car pull up. Hey, white boy, what you doing? What you doing in this neighborhood? Mm-hmm. I said, I'm a comedian. I'm performing at 20 grand. No, you ain't. No, you ain't. Because 20 grand only used in those days. Motown was in Detroit. Mm-hmm. And they used all the black acts from Motown. Cops put me in the car, take me over to the 20 grand. And the owner was a gangster named Bill K. Bush. They said, that, hey, BK, this white boy said he's working for you. He come in the car. I said, oh, yeah. He said, he's a comedian <laughs> working with Tim, Tim and Tom. And so they, all right. They took me. They said, if a white boy's in this neighborhood, he's either, you know, selling something, selling yeah, yeah. drugs or selling women. And so they took me back to Tim. You know, so now I knock on the door. Wait. I said, no, I'm not waiting five minutes. I'm, you know, I'm soaking wet. I've been arrested by the, taken to the police. I've been, you know, taken in by the, and I walk in the door. And they find out he had made love to this girl on my bed. <laughs> there was two, two, you know, there were two beds in the room. And, you know, we had to stay together because we had no money. Sure. You know, and now, and now I'm, I'm getting a little bit sore. So, we, you know, now I don't say anything. We go to do the show. That night we have, like comedy teams do, you have arguments sometimes. Uh-huh. And we're arguing about something creative. And I said something. He said, well, that, 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 see, that, it's not your fault. That's the white side, the racist side that you don't even realize you have. I said, wait a minute. You're going to call me a racist? I walked the streets of Detroit in an all-black neighborhood in the rain, got arrested by two black cops while you m- made love to a white girl on my bed. <laughs> and I'm a, he said, I might have been a bit hasty. He said, I might have been a bit hasty. <laughs> uh, oh, that's great. Well, that, that, well, that's, I got a hundred road stories. Yeah, throw, throw out a couple and then we'll, uh, we'll wrap this up and so you can go make your television taping tonight. Well, you know, the, the, uh, I mean, the, the, there, there were things that, that happened to us that, again, no other act ever had to pay the dues that mm-hmm. we had to pay. One time in Missouri, we were showcasing at a college called Northwest Missouri State. And what happened in those days, all the acts would go showcase like 15 acts in one night, singers and mm-hmm. comics. And then the colleges would come to the buyers and they would buy it. They'd have like a $5,000 budget for the year or 20000 whatever their budget was. They'd get an act for 750 or whatever. So Tim and I were showcasing. That night, we, went, we were hungry. It was like 1 o'clock in the morning. We found an old place called Jim's Cafe. Mm-hmm. We drove in there at Jim's Cafe. And it was all gravel driveway, you know, gravel. And, and, and as we walk inside, sure enough, all these rednecks in these pickup trucks and they had them long skinny sideburns and John Deere hats on and they went to work on me, not Tim. They said, look here, we got a white, but look at the white boy over there, you know, with, with his N-word friend mm-hmm. and blah, 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 and they're doing all that on me. And, and then they start implying with Tim and I, we might be two guys who live together and yeah, love, yeah. you know, now we're, and I'm getting mad and Tim's saying, Tom, Tom, stay cool, stay cool now, come on, don't, don't do anything stupid. And finally I told Tim, I said, go, Go get the car and back it up to the front door. And I said, I'll pay the check. He said, Tom. I said, no, just go just get the car. I won't do anything. Well, anyhow, as 
Tim went out, and I saw that him back the car by the front door. I slowly took my time and went up the counter to pay the check, and these rednecks went all over me. They were over in the booth. Well, look at you. You're going out with your little, you know, blah, blah, yeah, blah. Yeah. I can't, because it's a podcast, I can't tell you what they actually said. You can. There's no FCC covered. Oh. Unless I mean, you're uncomfortable enough. No, well, I mean, yeah, but, but I mean, you, they start talking about what I was going to do to Tim, and Tim was going to do to me, and, yeah, you, yeah. you, and all this kind of filthy talk, and I just, I just grit my teeth, and I grit my teeth, and... And I, I paid the bill, and I saw that Tim had the car running, and I, and I got to the door, and I turned around, and I said, yeah, I'm going to go do all those things with my black friend, and I want to ask you guys a favor. If you ever come to the south side of Chicago, you know, please come to my neighborhood so we can kick your skinny, hillbilly asses, you bunch of chicken shit sons of bitches, because that's what you are, a bunch of chicken shit sons of bitches. And I walked out the door and bolted in that car. <laughs> and Tim said, I said, Tim, take off, take off. He said, no, they were coming out of that booth, and they were coming. Right, I said, Tim, take off. I'm looking right. He said, what you do? I said, take off. Well, just as they hit the door, he peeled out of there. Well, all that gravel was like shotgun. Oh, yeah. And I hadn't landed that way but they were ducking and diving because it was all hitting the glass and everything and, you know he spun sideways out of there now we leave there and we go to the nearest motel because we got to get a room for the night we got to drive into chicago the next day and again because he had a wife and two kids and i had a wife and three kids we couldn't afford two rooms so we it's three o'clock in the morning like and we go into this old motel and you gotta wake the guy up mm-hmm. now he comes to the desk yeah i said we want to get a room for the night he said, you want two rooms? I said, no, we need one room. You know, we couldn't afford to. He said, oh, did y'all want one of them uh, king size? Or how about, and he winks at it. He said, how about one of them queen size? Now, by that time, I was exploding. <laughs> Give us the room. We don't want to hear your crap. <laughs> Tim's yelling at him. I'm yelling at him. I guess the guy figured out if we were gay. We were pretty tough gay guys. Boy, you know? <laughs> uh, well, it was really, it was just, that, that's what we had to put up with. Yeah, uh, we imagine. had put up with dues beyond any dues that were ever had to pay before, you yeah. know, it, it, uh, it, it, it was a tough time. And fortunately, Tim was the right black guy, and I was the right white guy. Sure, to endure what we had to endure, you know. Sure, <clears throat> this uh, podcast is not going up until after, and I'm not being uh, lame by checking my phone. I'm just checking the date to make sure this is uh, your next appearance will be Friday on the 10th. Uh-huh. Uh, this will be going up Monday the 13th. So, so uh, I killed him. Oh, I so killed what him. A great Since you, you didn't see it, I killed him. What was that story you told on Friday night? Oh, I told this great story about, geez, what would I? Do you know what story you're going to tell on no, this you know, weekend? I, I always have. I, you know, no matter what I give to him, mm-hmm. he'll jump over. He, t- he deliberately does that to me to try to throw me off. Sure, sure. Because he wants, you know, because that makes it look more spontaneous. Yeah, to yeah. Him. You know, but I don't, I mean, I, I'll give him lead in questions. And he'll deviate from them. <laughs> uh, one time, he uh, to give you an example, one time the question was, did Frank Sinatra have a sense of humor? Mm-hmm. And the story was that we were in a bar, and I think Ryan heard it in the show that I did, but we were in a bar one night in, in um, the desert, um, and it was Sidney Chaplin's bar, and Sidney locked up, the, uh, gave Frank the keys and said, you lock up, because mm-hmm. Frank stayed up till dawn. Sure. So there was no one in the place but Frank and I. As we were talking at the bar, a station wagon pulled up. I was looking over Frank's shoulder, and I saw Frank forgot to lock the front door. He, this woman comes out of the station wagon. There's another woman driving, and this woman comes on passenger side. Passenger side. She come running up, and she said, do they have a jukebox in here? And Frank Sinatra turned around and looked her right in the face. He said, what did you say? She said, do they have a jukebox in here? And Frank looked around the room, and he said, no. They said, I'll sing for you. She said, no, thanks. And she turned around, and she walked out. <laughs> I watched... Like a little boy, he was staring at her. I said, she obviously didn't recognize you. He said, maybe she did. Yeah. <laughs> now, so does Frank have a sense of humor? Yeah. Now, yeah. that was a story I was going to tell. So Dave's question is, does Frank have a sense of humor? Now, he knew it was about two women in a bar because he has to know all that Sure, stuff. sure. So here's what his question to me was. Frank was good with the babes, wasn't he? 
<laughs> my brain went dead blank. I had, Frank was good with the babes. <laughs> now my brain goes, Frank was good with the babes. Two women in a bar. Now I realize what he was doing right, to me. Right. I said, yeah, he was good with them. And he had a great sense of humor, too. Because one night, <laughs> and then I segue into my story, you know. Because you got to be on your toes with him, you know. He, yeah. He will, That's uh, awesome. So what's next for Tom Dreesen? What, what, what you got going on in the decent near future? Oh, I, li- I'm leave- I do Letterman, and I'm a master of ceremonies for the Ellis Island Medal of Honor Awards um, in New York, that I do that every year. Mm-hmm. Then I go from there to San Diego to do a couple shows. Are then you I- doing your, your one-man show? No, no, no. I'm doing just stand-up comedy. Okay. Then I go from there to Washington, D.C. Uh, Washington, D.C., I'm doing a thing. They're honoring Gary Sinise, and I'm the master of ceremonies. Oh, great. And then I... And then I'm all over. Then I go to Chicago. Uh, then I go to. I'm going to Ireland. Uh, they want me to perform in Ireland um, in July. Awesome. Yeah, I, then then I'm really. But then August. I'm August. I'm I'm doing like five of my shows in oh, August and September. Then I'm gonna sing "Take Me Out to the Ball Game" at Wrigley Field in Chicago. And, uh, and on and on and on. You Chicago. I can't escape you Chicago comedians, man. There are just. There's just. When I think I've met every one of them, another group comes out. It's the greatest city in the world to start out in. Yeah. Because Chicago will support you. Yeah. They will get behind you and support you, but then you got to leave them. I tell Chicago comedians all the time, you got to leave them because it, 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 I say Chicago will support you only so long. If, you're, if you leave your parents when you're 19 years old, it'll break their hearts. Come back when you're 24 as a success and they'll adore you. Yeah. Stay with your parents till you're 35 and see how much they adore you. <laughs> That's a lesson my brother could have learned. <laughs> yeah. Um, so is it TomDreesen.com or is Yeah, that... D-R-E-E-S-E-N. Everybody spells my name wrong, but it's D-R-E-E-S-E-N, TomDreesen.com. And you can find out where I'm at anywhere. You know. Oh, that's awesome. Well, Tom, I really, really appreciate it. Um, thank you so much. Check out TomDreesen.com. Check him out on his various... You saw him on Letterman this past Friday, but he'll be back on again uh, soon, I'm sure. And check out his one-man show, Come to Your Town. Get all his dates there. And uh, Chicago listeners, I'll be in Chicago. Tom, speaking of uh, Tom, I'll be at the Chicago Improv June 8th and 9th. June 8th and 9th. So if, um, I think I have a list for that show at the Improv. So if any listeners want to uh, give a shout-out and uh, see if they can get on the list, hit me up on Facebook. But... You have to wear your Road Stories t-shirt if you want to get on the list. uh, Oh, no, darn. I better get one of those. You're going to be leaving with one. Don't Oh, all right. I'm on the list. And you have to wear it on Letterman on Friday night. (laughs) (laughs) Underneath my suit. The other, yeah, exactly. The best dressed comedian out there. Tom Dreesen, thank you so much. I really appreciate it. I hope you'll come back and and talk Uh, to me again. I'm glad to be here. Thanks a lot, Tom. And thanks a lot for listening. Uh, We'll talk to you guys soon. Thank you. You want to know about life on the road? It's these tacos, angry dwarfs, strippers waving guns, and fees, fights, cancel flights, running with the runs, and blacklists, bounce checks, great a bachelorette, <laughs> drunks in the front, making out for your set, and middle acts doing blow more, missing merch, and drive the rental car past another mega church, and juice keys, vagina fists, your cell phone is gone, one big law and order marathon.